You know, we look at our life as Christians, our spiritual pursuits, and they themselves, you know, we may say, well, what worthwhile thing have I done for the cause of Christ? Yeah. And what I'm doing, is that really that helpful? Is it really that meaningful? Is it that, in, that effective in the standpoint of what's going on around me? And so that's why I had us turn to Zechariah. And we're in a moment, we're going to you know, read from one of the chapters here in this particular prophet. And as before we go there, I just want to suggest to you that, you know, God looks at things differently than the way we look at things. And God looks at the deeds of men, and also he looks at the deeds of his children differently than the way a man looks at the importance of something or the significance of that effort. And what a man may reason to be little or small or inconsequential may just be something that God looks at and says, that is a big deal. It may be seen as small to some man on the outside observing, you know, what, what, what worthwhile thing is that little task that you're doing? And yet from God's viewpoint, God says, that is exactly where I want you, where I want you to be, and that's exactly what I want you to be doing right now. As so the world may say it's small and insignificant because there's, there's no notoriety to it, there's, there's no big splash to it, you're just living your life the way you should live it. And perhaps an, an illustration of that is take you know, the example of the woman, the disciple, who anointed Jesus' head with perfume. And it's recorded in one place in Mark 14. You can go there and you, turn, you read this account of a woman who comes into the room and she anoints the head of Jesus with perfume in preparation, Jesus says, for his own burial. But those who are there observing, seeing what's going on, are very critical. You know, and their judgment about the whole matter is she has just wasted that perfume. That was very expensive stuff. That could have been used and had done something much bigger, and much a greater thing in their mind. But Jesus corrects their thing. He says, no. What she has done is so much more great than what you wanted that to be used for. She has anointed me for my burial. So with God, there is no small matters. With God, there are no small things. There are no little things. Now, we may look at it and say, oh, that's not no big deal. But really, even those so-called little things, small things, may be huge, huge endeavors to the cause of Christ, to the kingdom, to the glory of God. Because those small deeds sometimes have the most powerful effect in the long run. In the moment, you may say, oh, it's such a small thing. But those small things, one by one, start adding up. With that said, turn to the fourth chapter of Zechariah. In Zechariah chapter 4. Zechariah chapter 4. This is going to be our primary text, and we're going to build on, on the thought that's brought out in this text. But I'm going to start there in verse 1 of the fourth chapter of the prophet Zechariah. I'm going to read all 14 verses. Then the angel who was speaking with me returned and roused me as a man who is awakened from his sleep. He said to me, what do you see? And I said... I see and behold a lampstand. 
a lampstand all of gold with its bowl on the top of it and its seven lamps on it with seven spouts belonging to each of the lamps which are on the top of it. Also, two olive trees by it, one on the right side of, of the bowl and the other on the left side of the bowl. And then I said to the angel who was speaking with me, saying, What are these, my Lord? So the angel who was speaking with me answered and said to me, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said to me, This is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel, saying, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. What are you, O great mountain? Before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain, and you will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. Also, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this house, and his hands will finish it, then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? But these seven will be glad when they see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. These are the eyes of the Lord which range to and fro throughout the earth. Then I said to him, what are these two olive trees on the right of the lampstand and on its left? And I answered at the second time and said to him, What are the two olive branches which beside the two golden pipes, which empty the golden oil from themselves? So he answered me saying, Do you not know what these are? And I said, No, my Lord. Then he said, These are the two anointed ones who are standing by the Lord of the whole earth. What you have here is a vision and a revelation from God to Zechariah that's, that is going to be shared with particularly Zerubbabel. And it is a challenge to Zerubbabel to see, you know, see kind of the, the hurdles, the obstacles, the, the tasks that are before him and see them in the right light, to see them in the way God sees them. So let's back up a little bit historically and set the background you know, for this message. It is back in the book of Ezra chapter 2, you read about Zerubbabel being named among that first group, that first remnant that comes out of Babylon back to Jerusalem and Judah to rebuild and restore their homeland. And Zerubbabel is in that group among all of those Jews. It is a remnant. It is not the entire nation that comes back. It is just a remnant, a group from the nation Haggai describes Zerubbabel, for example, chapter 2, verse 2, he calls him the governor. He was the governor at the time. So he is the civil leader in Jerusalem and Judah at the time when they come back. And here he is, the civil leader you know, uh, on God's behalf. He's not a king. He's not a king. There's not going to be another king until Jesus comes. So he's not a king. He's a governor. And his job is to restore he has this pretty big building project that is given over to him. And, and the condition of the land and the circumstances and the environment is not at its best. 
And so you can imagine, okay, so you're coming back to a, a territory, a land, a city that's in ruins. You know, yes, the, uh, the Persian king had sent, sent with him supplies and resources, all that with him. But still, it's not like, okay, you got this nice, neat little building uh, plot, and now you can just start from ground up. No, it, everything's in ruin. <laughs> and now you've got to kind of clean up, get organized, and start that, that huge project. And in Ezra, we see the beginning of that project. And so Ezra 2, they, they, they arrive in Jerusalem. In Ezra 3, back in the third chapter of Ezra, you have the first thing that they accomplish. And that is they you know, uh, restore and put back up the altar of the Lord. And you see that in the first you know, six verses of Ezra 3. And he says, they set up the altar on its foundation, and as a result of this, they now restore the burnt offerings as well. And so in verse 3, they set up the altar on its foundation, and he says, and they offered burnt offerings on it to the Lord, burnt offerings morning and evening. And so, you know, you see the beginnings of this restoration. So here's this task, this mission that Zerubbabel, along with the high priest Joshua, are in charge of. They're, they're trying to make sure this gets going and is moving in the right direction. In the same chapter, you pick up there in verse 8, you know, and now you're in the second year. And so in the first year, basically in the seventh month of the first year is when they, they got the altar in place, and now they can offer the sacrifices according to the law of Moses. In, in the second year, that's when they get, lay the foundation for the temple. And you see that beginning in verse 8, you know, in verse 10 he says, when the builders had laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests stood in their apparel with trumpets and the Levites and the sons of Asa with cymbals to praise the Lord according to the directions of the king of David. So it was, a, it was a great day of celebration and excitement. Everyone's happy because we've got the foundation laid for the temple. You've got to lay the foundation first. And so, they, you know, so that's done. It's a good start. There's joyful praise for what they have achieved by this time period in their second year back. But like anything, any kind of project, any kind of task, it's not always going to go smoothly. There's going to be bumps. There's going to be hurdles. There's going to be things that get in the way. Things are going to happen that you don't plan on. And that's exactly what you see in the story about the reconstruction of the temple in the days of Zerubbabel. And it starts with, for example, even among them, where you've got, you've got this day of great celebration and they're all excited, the foundation is laid, you know, we've got a good beginning, but then you've got this group over here of the older brethren, the older Jews, who remember, who remember what the temple was. And so this day of celebration is not a day of celebration for them. Instead, they are weeping. You know, and so you begin, so you say, okay, you got this great day, but discouragement is going to start creeping in. And it starts with, from within. Everyone's not excited about what they've accomplished, you know, because they're looking at this foundation, well, this is nothing. What's the big deal? Why are you so happy about this? You know, I remember way back when, oh, the good old, the golden days, the good years, that kind of stuff, all the remembering, you know, you know, the past is always perfect when you're aged. <laughs> yeah. 
You know, remember how as we age, you know, we forget a lot of the bad things. We only remember the good things. And they remember, oh, the temple is so wonderful. You know, those are difficult days. The reason, remember, why did they, why did they lose the temple? Because they were not good days. It was a bad time. Oh, they had a temple. That was a beautiful structure, but it was, it was not a good time. But so not only do you have this discouragement that begin to creep in from among their own people, but then you got the outsiders coming in. And so you see that in chapter four of Ezra. We've got, you know, you got some outsiders, adversaries, some opponents who are trying to discourage the people from continuing to build the temple. And so you see that in the first four verses of chapter four of Ezra, particularly in verse four, he says, then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. So now you've got the, this, uh, you know, these opponents on the outside trying to stop them, discourage them, prevent them from doing what God wants them to do, you know, to continue this building project of reconstructing something that's gonna take a lot of work and a lot of energy and time and effort. As you continue to read in chapter four, and well, that doesn't stop them totally. And so these adversaries, the opponents, well, they're gonna appeal to higher powers. And so who do they go to? Well, they appeal to the, the Persian imperial authorities. And they, you know, they go and they try to sway you know, the imperial authorities of Persia to basically send back a decree saying, you can't build the temple, even though they had the authority to do that. Yeah. And sure enough, in this effort, they're successful. They get, they get the paper they want, and they come back, and sure enough, in, at, the, in, at the end of chapter 4, verse 24, then the work on the house of God in Jerusalem ceased, and it was stopped until the second year of the reign of Darius, Darius, king of Persia. So they, you know, they had a good beginning. You know, there is obstacles and hindrance and disappointments and discouragements, and suddenly they quit. They stop. Nothing's happening. And that goes and that happens like that for several years before they start rebuilding again. And it's not until the work of Haggai and Zechariah, the two prophets you know, who were the prophets of God at that time during the time period of Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. And so God sends Haggai and Zechariah into this picture. And you see that in chapter 5, where they are prophesying to the Jews who are in Judah and Jerusalem. And, and basically, they're you know, telling them, you need to rebuild. And see verse 2, then Zerubbabel and Joshua arose and began to rebuild the house of God, which is in Jerusalem, and the prophets of God were with them, supporting them. That's the time frame of Zechariah chapter 4. So when you're reading Zechariah, you're reading the time period when, okay, they had a good beginning, they, were, they, they stopped, and now they've started again. And so there is this kind of encouragement coming from God through his prophets to basically keep doing the job I gave you to do. And so the vision here of this lampstand and its bowls and the trees, basically what this vision is, is the fact that God is trying to encourage Zerubbabel to keep doing what I've given you to do. 
And so you, when you go back to Zechariah, you look at some of the things that, you know, Zechariah actually says in regard to, as, he, as the angel in the vision ex- explains to Zechariah, you know, what this means. Remember, he asked, you know, what is this? And he says, I don't know. I don't know what this is. And so then, and so he's, he's given some information about who is, and he needs some more uh, vision to explain. He said, what is this? And he says, I don't know. You've got to tell me, Lord. And sure enough, he does. But think about what he says here in verse 6. When he, you know, he said, you know, what are these things? I don't know what these things are. And so then the angel of the Lord says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. So this vision was primarily for, for Zerubbabel, the governor, the civil leader who is overseeing this project of reconstruction, rebuilding, and restoration. And he says, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel saying, not by might nor by power, but by my spirit. And he goes on to say, what are you, O great mountain? He says, before Zerubbabel, you will become a plain. And so picture, you've got this huge mountain standing in front of you that's blocking your way to finish the task. And God says, it's not by man's power. It's not by man's might. And this so-called mountain, it's a plain. And you will bring the top stone on the temple. He says, he will bring forth the top stone with shouts of grace, grace to it. And then you come on a little farther down, and, and he, he goes on to say in verse 10, who has despised the day of small things? It's interesting when you can go back and you compare some of the wording found in the book of Haggai. Remember, Haggai and Zechariah are contemporaries. They're co-workers in a sense. In Haggai chapter 2, verse 3, there's a question that Haggai asks. He says, do you remember the, glo- the former glory? In the context of this reconstruction, they're the ones who are supporting you know, this effort. They're the ones to encourage them. They're the ones who basically is trying to stir them up to the work of the Lord. And he says, do you remember the former glory? That question is asked. And then there also asked, does it not seem to you like nothing in comparison? You know, from man's viewpoint, what, is, you know, what does this look like? It's nothing. It's a small thing. You know, oh, the, the glory days of the past, the former days where, you know, the temple was glorious. And, you know, and look, look where we are now. You know, what, what do you see? It's not like the former days, but what do you see? He said, well, to you, it seems as nothing. To you, it seems such a small thing. And that's why Zechariah says, who has despised the day of small things? But he goes on to say, but Zerubbabel... Zerubbabel will hold the plumb line. He says, and, and, and there will be great rejoicing when Zerubbabel holds the plumb line, you know, because this will be finished. You think about that. This is basically a motivation. This is, in a sense, you want to, not the best comparison I think of right now, but I know here the coach is basically trying to stir up the team, you know, to stay focused, you know, you know, play the game. I know it's hard. I mean, you're up against some uh, really tough opponents right now, but you know, stay focused. You know, you're gonna, you're gonna get, you're gonna get this done. You're gonna finish this. He says, 
And you're not going to finish it because of yourselves. You're going to finish it because of me. You're going to finish it because, you know, the whole vision is the idea is God is going to make this happen. You know, yes, you've got a mountain of obstacles, uh, a mountain of opponents that are trying to stop you from doing what, you, you know, I, I sent you back to do. And you're discouraged, you're disappointed, and you're disheartened. He said, but no, you need to return to the front lines of doing the task that God has given you and realize God provides the way. God's grace makes it possible. And there is no obstacle, there's no obstacle when you are doing the Lord's work, not your work, but when we are doing the Lord's work as we are just prescribed to do, when we're doing that work, it may seem that we'll never accomplish much at all. You know, what we're doing from our viewpoint but when God looks at it, God sees something different. You know, because it's not a small thing to God for us to be doing his, his, his business, to be doing the things he wants us to be doing. God provides the way. None of God's work, you know, no matter how big or small we think it is, none of God's work, none of the Lord's labor is small, is inconsequential. Everything, you know, has a place and a time and a purpose in God's plan. And God sent Zechariah and Haggai you know, to the leaders of that day and to the people of the day to encourage them, to give them that spiritual boost that what they need to do is that you just need to keep laying one stone on top of one stone on top of one stone. It's one stone at a time. You know, it may seem you know, you're not accomplishing much right now, but... You know, with one stone laid on top of the other, eventually the job will be finished. And he says, and I'll make it happen, God says. Trust me. And that's really the lesson for us today, obviously, is. Even still today, we're not called to build a physical temple that was destroyed because of sin. But we are called to do the Lord's work, and God is still our strength today. Today. You know, if the work of our Lord seems a small thing in the, you know, to people in the Old Testament, then, but it wasn't, how much more is the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, if people looked at the business of the Old Testament, oh, it's nothing. It's so inconsequential. And God said, no, it is. It's, it's, it's very consequential. It's valuable. It's important. How much more that is true when, t- when we think about the work and the business and the cause of God's Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Like in the days of Zerubbabel, there will be opposition that you and I will face. There will be hurdles that we have to get over. There will be disappointments and there will be dis- discouragement. You know, but like Zerubbabel, we are also in the building business. It's all about building. It's all about restoring you know, we're in the same kind of business. It's just not so, so much physically oriented. You know, but we're still in the building business of building the temple of the Lord. And the temple of the Lord is not a, a building, a physical structure. The temple of the Lord is the house of God, is the people of God. And we're in the business of building up one another and building and adding more living stones to that structure. We are still in the building business just like Zerubbabel. 
But just like in the days of rubber, there will be opposition and there will be criticisms and there will be obstacles and there will be all these things that will have a way to discourage and disappoint and sometimes slow us down and may even cause us to stop doing something for a while. But the New Testament is filled with encouragement to us about what our role is as Christians today in our modern time. For example, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58, uh, you know, it's you think he's just you know, given this profound discourse on the truth and the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and our own resurrection to come. And verse 57, so thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that victory, we now have you know, the application. Because you have victory in Jesus Christ, because you know you're gonna be raised up from the dead one day because of Jesus Christ, because you're in Christ, because of that reason, verse 58, therefore, you know, because of the resurrection, therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, be immovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Let's kind of insert some of the Zerubbabel language. Knowing that your toil is not a small thing in the Lord. Now, to be in the Lord requires us to be doing God's business. It requires us to be abiding in Christ, abiding in his word, in his teaching, in his righteousness. Yes, you know, it, we don't get to uh, define, determine what that framework is. No, we are given the blueprint. And so, yes, it needs to be labor that's in the Lord, pleasing to him, acceptable to him. But the point is, is our labor that's in the Lord is not vain, is not a small thing. No matter how small the world judges it to be. You think about you know, God's people, you know, God's faithful body of people scattered across the globe may not be some mega church who's teaching and doing things to please people, but they're not pleasing God. And that looks so wonderful and great to the world because that's all about the glory of men. It's not about the glory of God. And they may look at us and say, oh, look, at, look at those believers over at Northfield Boulevard. They're such a little church. What are they doing? You know, you know, what big projects are they doing? You know, what, what great notarizing thing are they accomplishing? And then from the world's viewpoint, it says, they're doing nothing. It's just, you know, such a small thing. But we need to remember that it's not our labor that we're to be doing. It's his labor that we are supposed to be doing. So, our, you know, when we labor in the Lord, it is not a small thing. It is not something in vain. No task, no service that's acceptable to Christ should be despised or considered small or insignificant. Is giving food to a hungry brother a small thing? Is giving a drink to a thirsty sister a small thing? Is welcoming a, a stranger, a person into your home a small thing? Is closing, clothing a naked brother a small thing? Is visiting a sick sister or visiting a brother in prison 
are those small things, not to Jesus Christ. Because in Matthew chapter 25, those are the very points says, when you've done to the least of these, you have done it to me. And when you have not done these things, you have not done them to me. So there is no task. You know, how are small and insignificant, the world may look at it that you are doing in the Lord that is a small task. Don't despise small things. Don't look at it and say, well, that's nothing. No, it is not just nothing. You know, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, which you read earlier this, this evening, when it talks about the body of Christ and the various components of the body and, and how we are all very different, but each different part of that body you know, is valuable and important, though they may be doing different things to the health of the body. And that's the point. We are, we are members of the body of Christ. Yes, we may have different abilities. We may have different strength and different opportunities. We're all working together for the Lord, in the Lord, to please the Lord, to build the Lord's body, to make the body of the Lord to grow. It's not a small thing. Whether you're talking about some, you know, you know, someone who you know, does something publicly in the assembly of the saints as this evening, or you're talking about someone who is willing to clean the bathrooms. Cleaning the bathrooms is not a small thing. And doing something publicly is not some great thing either. We need to see the tasks that are before us, and all of it is necessary. All of it is vital and important. Greatness does not come by seeking a place of honor. Greatness comes by seeking a place of service. Serving always others any way we can in the attitude of humility. John 13, upper room, Jesus with the apostles. And according to, according to John's account, it seems this happened early on in the evening. Jesus you know, changes his attire, gets down on the floor, and he washes 24 dirty feet. They, weren't, they probably were not socked in, in enclosed shoes either. And you think about much of the ancient world, you know, sometimes the streets were flowing with all sorts of uncleanliness. And what was the point Jesus was trying to show? With his actions, he was showing that we need to have a heart and a mind that we're willing even to get down on the floor and wash each other's feet. The world will look at that and say, that's no great thing. But Jesus says, here's greatness. Greatness is in the small things that you do. And they may, they, and they may you know, it, you won't get rich doing it. You won't get noticed doing it. You know, you, know, you will not be considered as some honorable, you know, amazing person in, uh, in society. But God sees those things and he says, that's where greatness lies. It's in those so-called small things. They're not small to God. And God can take those moments and take those situations, and whatever it may be, God can take those things and God can multiply that 
you know, time's over. Over in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I love this passage. Yeah, in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, as it speaks of a heart that gives. And the idea of giving here has some idea, involves some aspect of monetary or financial giving, but it's not limited to that. But beginning there in verse 6, verse 6, he says, Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that always, having all sufficiency in everything, you, you may have an abundance for every good deed. As it is written, he scattered abroad and he gave to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. The God who supplies your daily physical needs is the God who can multiply your spiritual harvest. And he says, you will be enriched in everything for all liberality, through, you know, which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. You think about that. You know, 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about the inspiration of scripture and the profitableness of that. And verse 17 ends by saying, how, What? So that you may be, depending on what version that is kind of engraved in your, in your memory, so that you may be thoroughly equipped or thoroughly furnished unto every good deed. God is able to give you all that you need to do the jobs that you need to do, whatever it is. And he says, my word will equip you for that. Or you think about Ephesians 2 when it talks about how in Christ we are God's workmanship. God is the one who's, who has, you know, in a sense, brought us to life through Christ. And we are now his workmanship for every good work that he prescribes. You know, too many times, you know, people want to rely on, on human wisdom or human strength to decide their abilities, their opportunities, or, or whatever service or ministry they want to do. But the thing is, God is able to take the smallest kind of thing, and he, he's able to make that to exceedingly go beyond what we can imagine. And that's exactly what you know, Paul prayed and commended in Ephesians chapter 3, that our God is able to do exceedingly beyond and above what we think and what we ask. That's amazing. Yeah, because I imagine, you know, most of us can, can think pretty big things. <laughs> but whatever we can think big, God is able to take that far beyond what we, we can think or even ask. God is able to cause us to abound. And so, you know, when I think about the, this idea of, of doing the Lord's work and, and laboring in, 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 in the Lord's business or sowing to the Lord, you think about those kind of things. God's grace can make you sufficient in everything that you need to do, whatever he's prescribed. You think about in 1 Corinthians 3, 6, where Paul says, you know, I, I what? I planted. And Apollos did what? Apollos watered. Each had a task, and each was, was different in, in that uh, spiritual, uh, agricultural uh, picture. 
But ultimately, who's making it grow? God's making it grow. God is causing the increase, and we need to understand that. That's why there's no small thing when it comes to God's work. The world may look at all oh, that's just piddly. Yeah. You remember that small church? Yeah. You're not doing what? And, and so if we're not careful, we allow the world to discourage us and disappoint us, and we think, you know, we're not, you know, we're not being about the Lord's business. And I want, to say, I want to encourage you to realize that do not let the world define who you are. And definitely do not let the world define who a Christian is. You're not just a father or mother. Somebody say, well, I'm, ju- I'm just a mom. Yeah. You're not just a father and a mother. You're not just a faithful wife or a faithful husband. You know, I'm just a husband. That's all I am. No, no, you're not just a husband. You're not just a steadfast caregiver either. That's not, you know, I, I'm nobody, you know, not, you know I, I just have to take care of, of a loved one. You're not just taking care of a loved one. I, I, I'm just an employee at this factory, you know, uh, uh, I'm just an IT guy for some company, you know. Uh, that's all I am. I'm, you're not just a dependable employee. And on and on, we need to understand, all of those roles are significant. And the world may look at your position or, and your job or, or your relationships, and the world will want to tell you, you know, whether it's significant or not, and God has already told you. He's already told you, that family relationships are significant. And being a parent and being a spouse and being a carer, those are important roles. And when you are doing that job, that's, you know, that's what you need to be doing. You know, when you're a mom and a dad, and that's the time in your life, that's what you need to be doing. You know, and when you got this job, that's what you need to be doing. And when you, when you have the stage in life and you're a caregiver, that's what you need to be doing. It is not a small thing to God. It's all part of kingdom business. It's all, a part, it's all part of being a citizen of the one who's the true king of the universe and being the kind of citizen and kind of person, the kind of disciple that we are called to be. And God who supplies us, you know, the physical seed for our harvest is the God also supplies us with with the spiritual seed and the spiritual nourishment and the spiritual strength to do the job that is before us. There are no small things when it comes to God's work. There's no small task when it comes to God's calling of us. So you think about it, you know, there, there is no, you know, there's no small contribution. There's no small financial contribution when it comes from a pure heart who gives cheerfully. There's no small contribution. It's big. And we can do that and we can keep on doing that. God will multiply it. He's the one that gives us the strength to do it and he will multiply our harvest to keep doing that. There's no job that is too lowly for us to do as servants 
of the Lord in the Lord's house. Whether you're talking about taking care of the grounds outside or, or things in here, you know, some of it's pretty, pretty uh, dirty business. It can get pretty nasty sometimes. But there's no, there's no, there's no job that's too lowly for us to do. And it may be emails from the standpoint of doing for others. Doing for others is time consuming. Do, doing for others, you know, can be emotionally draining. But there's, no, it, there's nothing too small when it comes to doing for others. Our spiritual endeavors, whatever it may be, none of it is worthless when it's in the Lord. Whether it's from teaching classes to simply edifying you know, a sister or a brother in a very personal way, whatever means you do that. You know, there, there's no small thing. And the point is we just need to realize we just need to lay one stone on top of another stone and just keep laying those stones you know, the way God tells us to do it. And it will grow. We don't cause the growth. You know, we just labor. We just build. And God is bringing the increase. God is causing. So we just got to stay involved. We got to stay, you know, be participants and realize when we are participants in, you know, in the work of the Lord, there's nothing that you do faithfully to him that is small. The world may think that. But don't worry about what the world thinks. That's who, you, know, that's, you don't need to be concerned about what the world thinks. What you need to be concerned about is, what does God think about what I'm doing? And God says, it may, be, it may seem as nothing. It may seem small. But he says, but you keep working. You keep building. You keep doing. He says, you know what? The temple will be built. And the house will be completed. God's way, in God's time, to God's glory. Remember, we serve an awesome God. He is beyond really our comprehension. And every small thing you do, and it's not, but these so-called small things that you do for him, that you do for his son, that you do for his people, when you're doing those things according to his will, that's a big deal to God. It's a big deal to God. And that's all that you need to be concerned about when it comes to who do you need to please. And so with God as our both physical and spiritual supplier and sustainer, we can abound. We can abound in the service and the work of the Lord and God's house in Christ one day will be finished and completed. And there we will stand on the shores of eternity together as living stones glorifying the God who redeemed us sinners because he loved us enough to atone for us. If you're here tonight and you're not a Christian because you've not obeyed the gospel, you might be a believer you believe in God, you believe Jesus to be the Son of God, but you've not rendered obedience to the commandments of Jesus. We want to encourage you to do that. Encourage you to confess your faith that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. He died on the cross and he was raised on the third day. 
And with that confession, we, you, know, you need to repent of your sin, the sins you've committed in your life. Turn away from that path. Turn to light and begin your life with Jesus being baptized into Christ. If you are a Christian, but you've strayed, perhaps you've allowed the discouragement to the points of life to cause you to quit working, and you just need to get back to the business that you, you know, have been called to do. If we can assist you anyway spiritually, we invite you, encourage you, please come forward, make your wishes known when we stand and sing the song that's been selected.